It's Tuesday, June 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you, my friend. Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. We've got some retail. We've got some apparel. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We've got some cloud software earnings to get to. We're going to start with Macy's because Macy's is scheduled to come out with their first quarter report in a few weeks, but preliminary results out today indicating Macy's loss is going to be a little smaller than Wall Street was expecting. They've also raised $4.5 billion in debt to help shore up the balance sheet. So, what do you think, Jason? It's it's a little better for Macy's, yes? Yeah, I mean, it, it is better in the sense that they have bought themselves some more time. Uh, you know, we always talk about it's, it's, it's tough to use debt to get yourself out of debt. And um, some point, down the line, Macy's gonna they're gonna have to figure out how to reconcile that. But for now, I mean, this does buy them you know time, which is really what they need most of. Um, in, in that very close second is shoppers, right? Uh, but I mean, you go back a year, okay? Go back a year from from today. We were talking about Macy's and the challenges the business was facing well before you know the pandemic ever hit i mean at that point from 2015 on top line uh, revenue had had fallen 11% net income had fallen 33% earnings per share were down 22% and then i mean they had burned through a considerable amount of cash along the way around 70% of their cash balance uh, they burned through since 2015 as well so i mean this was a business facing a lot of challenges a year ago fast forward to today i mean clearly those challenges have only grown uh, it, it, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about this with J.C. Penney for so long. Does the world really need J.C. Penney? I mean, we can ask the same thing. Does the world really need Macy's? I mean, I don't know if it really needs it. I, I do feel like maybe there's there's a bit bit more of a spot for a Macy's in, in our retail landscape here, and I am hopeful that management is able to weather the storm. But I mean, it, it is going to be a monumental task going forward, and and. You know, we still don't know how this uh, this coming fall is really going to shake out. I mean, there are there is a there's enough uncertainty, I think, in regard to what the fall season is going to look like here, um, as far as the pandemic goes. If we can get through the fall season with with relatively uh, mild conditions, this holiday season is going to be a pivotal time for Macy's, one where they can really capitalize. But for now, uh, yeah, I mean, they they bought themselves some very valuable time. They did. You raise a good point in terms of the timing, because we know that for a lot of retailers, the most important time of the year is the holiday season in December. Second most important is back-to-school shopping. We're going to obviously see the extent to which schools open up, but that is an opportunity for Macy's, and hopefully they can take advantage of it. But you just reminded me of the conversation we had last week on Motley Fool Money. We were talking about Dick's Sporting Goods and sort of this idea of... You know, someone's got to survive, right? I mean, all sporting goods stores can't go the way of sports authority, right? There's got to be one left standing. At least that's my thinking, and I'm I'm wondering the same sort of thing about Macy's. Like it, it has more brand equity than J.C. Penney. They historically have done a better job of managing their footprint, managing their inventory, which is tough to do. So I'm I'm not buying shares of Macy's, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were. Not only around in five to ten years, but in better shape from a financial standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a I think that's a fair observation. I mean, I, I do feel like 
I feel like Macy's holds a little bit more status uh, in, in the retail space than something like a JCPenney. I mean, they, they do have, I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse to have that sort of anchor position in a, in a mall environment. I mean, I don't think malls are going away. I mean, look at something like Simon Property Group and their exposure to the mall uh, segment of, of retail. I mean, that that is, you know, you've, you've got companies that are very good at what they do in managing those real estate portfolios and putting ideal tenants uh, in those malls. I think, you know, Macy's falls into the category of, you know, one of those ideal tenants that they would want to see. Um, yeah, I, I think that Macy's certainly can exist. I, I don't doubt that one bit. Maybe it's in a smaller form. Um, yeah, maybe it's something where private equity comes and, and you know takes this thing out of the public markets. I mean, the public markets, while we love them, obviously that's that's a, that's a it's a great vehicle to to growing wealth over over uh, the long haul for investors. I mean, it, it is all it's a very heavily scrutinized. Um, Part of the world, right? I mean, that, that's that's sort of the downside for companies that go public is now you have to be fully transparent and and you have to bring all of the bad that comes along with the good and and there can be a snowball effect. I mean, when when a company like Macy's starts feeling a little pressure and they start uh, you know finding themselves in a, in a precarious position, that can that can snowball. Uh, investors can can be very unforgiving when it comes to that stuff. But but yeah, I, I do see a world where Macy's exists. Albeit in a probably smaller form, uh, whoever is going to be leading the company over over the coming years, you know, it, it's just going to be it's going to be a monumental task. They will definitely earn their money. Shares of Coupa Software up four percent this morning. First quarter profits for the cloud software company came in much higher than expected. Coupa also gave some pretty solid guidance for the rest of the fiscal year. Yeah, that was really interesting. I thought in a in a market where everybody's suspending guidance, uh, I mean, Coupa, you know, they they're they're out there offering guidance, and they actually raised guidance a smidge when you, when you look at it. Um, this is a really neat business. I mean, the biggest risk to a business like this today, from an investment perspective, really is valuation. Um, I mean, it's still a young business, a new business, very modest cash flow numbers. It's still unprofitable. It trades at around thirty five times sales. Uh, you know, which we've seen a lot of these software uh, companies do, uh, but. I mean, the flip side there, it is growing like a weed. Management's targeting 30% annual uh, revenue growth. I mean, this is this is a company that is still growing uh, very quickly, and, and they're pursuing a very big market. Um, you know, you know, I'll, I'll to give you an idea of what they do. Coupa, it's in business sales management. Now, ultimately, they draw an analogy with Salesforce, and that Coupa is to business sales management as Salesforce is to customer relationship management. In, in, I, I mean, I think that's an apt comparison. And if you look at what Salesforce is today, the success that the business has had uh, to this point. I mean, that that's that's a flattering analogy. I mean, if you're a Koopa, you like hearing that because it gives you some some uh, optimism that you're, that you're making the right decisions there. And so, this business sales management focuses on helping businesses in procurement, invoicing, expense expense management. And uh, you know, when when I mentioned the, the biggest risk to the business on the on the side of uh, the valuation, thirty five times sales. And just to give you an idea of how different the market can view different companies, okay, I'm not comparing Coupa to Macy's. Obviously, it's apples and oranges, but Coupa at 35 times sales, Macy's is trading at about 0.1 times sales. So that gives you an idea of the expectations that the market has for these different types of businesses. And so we obviously like these software businesses and they're pursuing a big market, but you do you have to be careful with the valuations when it comes to them but but they have 
tremendous network effects in play here. And, you know, one of the metrics that we pay attention to with this company quarter in and quarter out is what they call cumulative spend under management. That's essentially just all of the money that's being spent throughout their customer base. And that that chalked in at $1.8 trillion this quarter versus $1.2 trillion a year ago. Now, they're not monetizing that, right? They're not getting like a sliver of that $1.8 trillion, but it's an indi- it's an indicator of the health of the business and the growth of the business. And uh, that, along with its attractive sub- subscription revenue model, uh, I mean, I understand why the market is giving this thing the valuation it's giving, because there, I, there are some great expectations, but, but these guys certainly seem to be up to the task. I guarantee you that at least one of the dozens of listeners <laughs> who is a value investor heard you say, Macy's is trading at 0.1 times sales, <laughs> and thought to himself or herself, really? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I might we, need, to, <laughs> I need to take a look at this. And we've talked about that before, right? I mean, that's the question with Macy's. Is it a value trap or is it a value play? And I mean, in my heart of hearts, I want to see a world where Macy's exists. And, and I, I got to say value play there. But you know, it's it's just it's it's impossible to really predict the timing there, which makes it which makes it such a tough one to really fully buy into. But yeah, uh, yeah, clearly clearly the market looks at, the, at these uh, businesses very differently. Tough day for tailored brands. Bloomberg reporting that the parent company of Men's Warehouse and Joseph A. Bank is considering filing for bankruptcy, and shares of tailored brands down fifteen percent today. We we've been saying for a while. We don't want to be in this new environment in the business of selling men's suits. And Taylor yeah. Brands is 100% in that business. And not surprisingly, this is, this is really tough for them. It is. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it really strikes me that, you know, I mean, we had a listener, I believe his name was Benjamin, who chimed in um, a little while back with this. I'm just going to go ahead and reiterate this may be the time, Chris for us to bring the wardrobe mullet idea to tailored brands, because clearly they need to consider some type of a pivot, some sort of uh, corner that they need to turn to take this business in a little bit of a different direction. Maybe the wardrobe mullet is it because of all of these Zoom calls and the, and the way that we're meeting remotely now. You know, I mean, we're talking about those those nice shirts and collars and ties on top, but really, you know, it, it, business up on top, it party down below, whether it's shorts or jeans or flip flops or what have you. Maybe there's something there. I don't know, but I, it, it, in all honesty, it does feel like with tailored brands. I don't know that there are any really good options. Uh, it's it's more like only the least bad one. Uh, it, it just seems like they are pursuing a market that's shrinking. You know, we talk about looking for large and growing market opportunities, and there's a reason why. Because I think when you look at what tailored brands is doing, even consolidated as the men's warehouse and Joseph A. Bank. I mean, they're ultimately pursuing what seems to be a shrinking market, not a growing market, and that makes it very difficult. Uh, as far as investing goes, I mean, I mean, clearly, I would never pursue um, an investment based on whether or not they will uh, pursue bankruptcy. Um, I think you know we talk about investing in long-term trends or short-term catalysts. I think the long-term trend for this business, regardless, is bad. So, if you're looking for that short-term catalyst in whether they get some financing or a lifeline or whatever, that's fine. But the trouble with trying to invest in a short-term catalyst, you really have to time it right, and that's really difficult to do. I mean, that's that's imperative that you time it right, and that and that timing is just really difficult to do. So, um, you know, again, maybe there's a world where this company needs to exist. Maybe it's in a, a much smaller form, um, but but yeah, I I don't. I 
don't envy management at this point because I don't know that there are any easy answers. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Uh, got a question uh, from Harrisville, Utah. Thanks for the insight on Teladoc. I believe the company is solving a serious problem in the healthcare system, and I'm cheering them on. I recently visited my doctor, and he recommended a follow-up video. However, due to the relaxed restrictions during the pandemic, we set that up over Google Duo. They also indicated that the hospital was developing an in-house app. So what long-term durable moats does Teladoc have in place against competitors? Is HIPAA a meaningful obstacle to entry? Uh, thank you for your voices of calm humor in troubling times. Um, great question. And, you know, we, we talk about Teladoc. You, I mean, that's, that's one of your favorite stocks. This is a land grab. I mean, Teladoc, Google Duo, there are so many. I mean, I had a telehealth visit a couple of months ago, and uh, my provider was like, nope, you got to download, I think it was called Helo, H-E-A-L-O-W. So, this this is a land grab. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm glad that um, that he brought up the, the HIPAA uh, dynamic there, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. I think that was something that was developed back in 1996 or so. But ultimately, um, HIPAA is something that it's meant to help shore up any weaknesses in our healthcare landscape, whether it be privacy or whether it is, you know, keeping healthcare providers uh, continually educated, continually up to speed with the regulatory environment. Um, and so, with HIPAA, as the pandemic uh, has, has, has uh, developed, HIPAA, they, they haven't really suspended HIPAA. I think it's more that they are just relaxing the regulations. They're not really pursuing any punishment of violations of HIPAA, of HIPAA regulations. Um, and, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, we, we've hit a point where really we need to see the merits of telemedicine. And, and that's, true, that's that's proving to be a very uh, helpful solution in this time where we're getting out of the house and going to sit in a doctor's office isn't necessarily... Um, as attractive a proposition as, as it once was. So, I mean, with HIPAA, that is a big regulatory hurdle that healthcare providers need to clear, right? I mean, there's security involved, there are policies and procedures in place. Uh, you have to understand all of the HIPAA dynamics as it applies to your business. You have to document everything. You have to create an ongoing training program. Right. That's why, I mean, that's why anytime you go into the doctor, you know, HIPAA is the law that basically protects your health information. So that, yeah. you know, so the whole idea of you're going to have a private setting to meet with your doctor so that nobody else has access to what you're being treated for, what conditions you may, you know, all that sort of thing. But yeah, as you said, the uh, I think it was the Department of Health and Human Services sort of relaxing those federal regulations to make it easier for hospitals and different medical practices to um, engage in telehealth. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that was the right thing to do. I think it 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 really helped, uh, you know, shore up some extra supply for for a demand problem that that was coming down the pike. Um, I mean, going going forward, longer term, I don't I don't think that that's going to be something that becomes the norm, right? I mean, I think that at some point or another, they get back to you know fully fully enforcing HIPAA guidelines because that's what it's there for, and 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 it's there for good reason. Um, and so I, I think honestly, I mean, this is something that really actually demonstrates 
illustrates all of the work that Teladoc Health and other telemedicine providers have done to this point in building out their networks and building out their companies so that they're so that they're HIPAA compliant, right? I mean, there there's a lot of work that goes into that, and and as as HIPAA does, you know, become something that's that's more enforced down the road. I mean, I think that just will will go back to the regulatory challenges. There are some barriers to entry in this line of work in the form of regulatory uh, barriers, and, and, I, and I think that's something that we'll continue to see. And so I think with with Teladoc, I, you know, as as far as a a, a durable moat, I mean, I, moat's a very strong word, it, and, and I know it's something that gets thrown around a lot thanks to Buffett and Munger. Now, I, I mean, I think you know, moat. It's I, I don't know that necessarily Teladoc. Has a strong and durable mode. I think they're they're wor- they're building it. I think that they're building it by virtue of this comprehensive offering that they have. I mean, this is not just a visit the doctor on your phone anymore. And to, to the point about um, the the hospital building out its own own telemedicine service, uh, that was actually the logic behind Teladoc's acquisition of InTouch Health here recently. They bought InTouch Health, and InTouch Health is essentially a provider of those services to enterprises. InTouch Health is helping hospitals build out their own telemedicine offerings. Uh, so, that very well could be something that Teladoc is, is, is a part of in that particular situation. Um, but, but again, I mean, I think it goes back to the strength and the network and the comprehensive offering and what Teladoc Health has been building out. Um, another quick example, and I just I found this very interesting at their recent Investor Day, when you, when you look at primary care, right? When we talk about primary care and how important that is to, uh, you know, keeping keeping a long and healthy lifestyle. And primary care is something that really many adults lack a primary care doctor. In uh, the data, actually, back in two, 2018 showed that from eight, you know, eight, in ages 18 to 29 years old, 45% of those adults lacked primary care. They didn't have a primary care team. 30 to 49 years old, 28% didn't have one. And, and I mean, that's for a lot of different reasons, uh, but but access is certainly one of them and one of the big ones. And, and so, Teladoc is working on reimagining the primary care uh, relationship in order to bring that to uh, more individuals that could benefit from it. So, I just think it all kind of goes to that comprehensive offering that Teladoc Health is building out. So, is it a moat? I don't know that I would call it a moat, but I, I, I would say it puts them in a very strong competitive position compared to their peers. And, and I think that as the as the HIPAA stuff, uh, you know, is is enforced down the road, that that'll become a bit more apparent. Right, and you know, if you're in the video, like if you're in the video conferencing business, you know, HIPAA is one of those things that you have to look at and say, okay, do we want to invest time and resources to clearing the regulatory hurdles? to make our business HIPAA compliant. Sure. Um, you know, uh, earlier this year we had, you know, uh, the whole idea of Zoom bombs happening. It's like, yeah, <laughs> and, and you and I have joked like, hey, if someone wants to Zoom bomb us while we're just talking, that's fine. Sure. I, not when I'm meeting with my doctor. No. No, <laughs> no, no I do not. not at all. And, and I mean, that's, you know, that's a good point. I mean, Teladoc, they built their, they've built their service, their platform from the ground up. I mean, they're not relying on Google Meet or Zoom video chat. I mean, they're, they, they own that, that relationship. And I think that's something that's, that's worth keeping in mind as well. I mean, they, they have, they have invested a lot of money in that business through the years to build out uh, what they have. And, and I think they're, uh, they're continuing to head in the right direction. Uh, by the way, that question came from Sean in Harrisville, Utah. I had misplaced his name earlier. So, Sean, thank you for that. Sean. Uh, real quick, before we go, one last. Uh, you can you can send us the email, marketfoolery at fool.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter, at marketfoolery is the show's handle. 
Question from Neil in Rockville. Where does Google's Meet come into play in the battle between Zoom and Microsoft Teams? Thanks. I'll hang up and take my answer <laughs> off air. Um, love that. Um, <laughs> you know, we... We pay a lot of lip service, and rightfully so. I don't. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. We, when we talk about Zoom, we also talk about Microsoft and Teams, and we talk about Cisco systems with WebEx. We don't really talk about Google's Meet. Um, I actually had um, uh, a, a Google Meet uh, video call last night with some friends from high school uh, for oh, about yeah. two hours, and it was it was my first time using it. It was. Great, easy, simple, all that sort of thing. Um, basically, what you want in those systems. I, if Google is pushing this in the same way that Microsoft is pushing the video offering as part of Teams, I'm unaware of that. Um, yeah, I don't think they are. I mean, I think that I, I, I think that while Google Meet is certainly a noteworthy option, I think um, you know it, it's. It has the advantage of being part of the Google universe, and Google has a very good reputation for building services and platforms that, that garner a lot of users. I mean, I think they have nine now with a billion users or more each. Um, I, you know, I, I, Google Meet has its merits. Um, it used to be known as Google Hangouts Meet, and, and, but ultimately it's their enterprise group video conferencing solution, and it's been made free to everyone during this time, just as, as Zoom has been uh, in, in everyone else. So, I mean, I think with advantage, I mean, being that it's in that Google network, it's a Google service, uh, people who are familiar with Google services, I mean, it's going to be something that's relatively consistent there. I think security is probably the big leg up there that Google has right now on Zoom. I, you know, I don't know actually that that really matters. And one of the reasons why is because I think it becomes more apparent when you start to look at all of these different Google offerings, it, it, it's confusing. I mean, you have Google Meet, Google Hangouts, Google Duo, Google whatever. And, and so they, they, they do have this landscape that becomes a bit cluttered at times. And, and it's a bit confusing as to what is what and why I would use one over the other. And I think, you know, the flip side, that's that's maybe an advantage that Zoom has really been, been honing in on is, is that um, is that, you know, they do one thing and, and they know what it is and it works. Right. I mean, it's it's that's what they do. It's not confusing. And I, th I think maybe with Google and, and Google Meet, there's still maybe some confusion as to what it is, who it's for. And, and that could be a problem. And then when you couple that with the fact that Microsoft is uh, doing such a good job and really getting the word out there for Teams, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that Google Meet is something to ignore, but I, I also wouldn't say that I, I'd be far more worried about Microsoft Teams as opposed to Google Meet if I'm a Zoom shareholder. Well, and when you consider how much cash Alphabet has yeah. on its balance sheet, it's really just a matter of waiting to see the extent to which they are willing to deploy it to get this to be the default video conferencing that people use you know and it's basically going to the CFO Ruth Porat and making the business case so i agree with you i think again just had my one first experience last night it was great it was easy i have no trepidation about using it but i i would wait to see a clear signal from Google and Alphabet that they are willing to invest in this to yeah. make it the go-to, that there is a business outcome for them where Ruth Porat signs off and says, okay, yeah, go, spend the money, do what you need to do, because I see the, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I don't think they've done that yet. 
I don't. I don't either, and I, and I don't. I don't know that they will. I mean, I think if you if you list off all of the priorities for Google um, and Alphabet in in really where their best opportunities are, I, I don't know that they view Google Meet as necessarily that opportunity. I mean, is that really is that juice worth the squeeze, so to speak? I mean, I, I think Google management is probably smart enough to recognize that it's not. Um, it'll be something they have. It'll be something that some people use. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the signs of Google Meet's success would become very apparent in, in you know, a, a fall off in the performance of, of, you know, something like a Zoom. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.